Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. You're coming to us live from the Baker Beanery, huh? I'm in the coffee shop of the um, Baker uh, Bookhouse uh, bookstore here in Grand Rapids. It's got one of the largest uh, out-of-print theological collections that you can purchase um, books from uh, in the nation, if not the largest. And they've got, of course, they got a you know new new books across the spectrum. It tends to be a little skewed toward, um, you know, um, Calvinism and the theology. Uh, You're Grand Rapids, man, in Michigan. That's but, like a it's, uh, Dutch Calvinist know, Mecca. It's, it's a fun little joint. I was at the Acton Institute dinner last night with A.J. Sherrill and a bunch of other people, and um, uh like what those guys are doing. And so we stayed overnight because it's three hours, you know, event gets over at 10.30, you're not getting home until 1.32, so we stayed overnight and had breakfast, and we've been hanging out in here for a little while. Nice. Well, thanks for joining me from on location. We've got interesting text this week. We're Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 34, where the Lord says that, you know, that God will, he'll sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans, the seed of animals, just as he has watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy. He'll build them up. And in those days, people aren't going to be, uh, singing such, such dour songs. And then he talks about this day was, is going to come where there'll be a new covenant, one that's different than the Sinai covenant, one that's where the law is written on people's hearts. Yeah. There's this really interesting, I mean, you know, obviously it starts out with this, these lines about restoration, about almost a, a kind of post flood repeopling and repopulating of the nation uh, that happened. And, um, then there's this, this saying, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, um, which he says essentially he's overthrowing this notion that, um, children suffer for the sins of their parents, Yeah, that everyone will, everyone will die for their own son, which we see not only here, but in other places in the latter Old Testament, um, a kind of, of, of shift, right, from, um, uh, uh, hermitology, uh, a, a doctrine of sin that, that sort of has this idea that it's passed down to one where each individual is um, held responsible for their own uh, sin and, and they don't suffer for. It's it's interesting to me because I think, in even just sociologically, um, we see the consequences intergenerationally of sin, and so there's a truth um, there. Uh, at the same time, um, he's he's sort of saying like. Um, in terms of justice and in terms of uh, personal um, history and so forth, um, there's you're not accountable 
even though there may be intergenerational consequences of sin, everyone's accountable for their own and they die for their own. So it's, it's a sacred, it's sort of a ch- sacred truth held in tension. And I think, um, we, we have to pay attention to these sort of things like this, where we can acknowledge the intergenerational consequence of sin, but that I'm not, I'm not volitionally, I'm not responsible for what my parents did. Um, so anyway, that's interesting, right? Yeah, I think that, that takes place in the Old Testament about that. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting. Also, I like what you said about this new creation language, the recreation language, because oftentimes I think that oftentimes the re- redemptive events in the Old Testament are they prefigure right the new creation that's coming in Christ. So often that that somehow God get God sort of does these anticipatory new creation moments, right where where these things are seen as, 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 as bits of new creation in the midst of the old. So I think that's an interesting way to read that. And then of course, you know, it seems to point to this, this deeper new creation that where it seems like the, the kind of gift of the spirit, you know, where, where if, you know, N.T. Wright always says that, that, you know, Christ and spirit kind of fulfill temple and Torah, you know, um, in, in some ways in, in the redemptive story. So like the, the, you know, you could see that as a, as a, an allusion to a, a, a new ultimate sort of recreative moment. Well, he's he, obviously there's the, you know, all of these, the, the moment of creation with our primal ancestors. And then there's the, the sort of recreation of the world that happens in uh, the Noahic uh, covenant. And then you have um, this whole history of, you know, Abraham and the nation and how that's sort of been up and down in terms of, of death and destruction and new life. Um, and then, you know, he talks about the, the children, ancestors in terms of sin, and then he starts talking about ancestors in terms of narrative and covenant. And he's like, um, well, there was this covenant with your ancestors that sort of was like reliant on them. And now this new covenant I'm making is reliant on me. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm making a covenant with my people and, um, the, the, the spirit of God is going to write, um, uh, there's going to be, um, we're we're not going to have to teach each other uh, because we're already going to know the Lord for they shall know me from the least of them to the presence of the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity. And, and, you know, we can reinsert again and I will remember their sin no more. So um, it does seem to be a shift from um, a covenant in which there was a kind of, God was a faithful husband, but we weren't faithful to him. Um, And now God's making a covenant that he's, he's going to perform. And, you know, he's, he's going to ensure. And yeah. And I think, I think of the words of Jesus when he says that, you know, that it's not what goes into somebody that defiles them, but what comes out of them, from their heart, mm. you know, rat. And so it seems even here that like, this is what it's pointing to what Jesus is saying that, you know, that it's, this is where the law can restrain us uh, and even convict us, but it can't really change us the way that, the spirit can and love of God, the grace of God can. So it's this renovation from the inside out. The, the way the sacrifice of God for the world and the and humanity that he loves can. Um, so, you know, the, the one human um, comes and, and, and loves the world in the way that he does on the cross. And but that is, of course, because he's God also capable of, of bringing about the reseeding of the world with humans and animals and plants and everything else that the spirit brings. Um, yeah. But in a, in a world where everybody already knows God, um, because the Lord has, it says, it says the reason they'll know the Lord is that he forgives 
their iniquity and remembers their sin no more. So yeah. that's real. That's also sort of, I mean, you could go some mystical places, but I think if you were preaching, you know, and you really wanted to talk about like your personal history and your relationship with your you know, culture, with your nation, with your family, there's a lot of rich things to mine here about that in terms of just each about even how each of us approaches our, you know, ancestral history, our personal history, our national history, our civilizational history um, and thinking about all of this stuff. Right. So. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, because I think what you said is there. That's interesting to point out that how you'll know this is how we always know the Lord. Right? We know the Lord as the forgiver of sins. You know, it's always mm-hmm. personal. Uh, you know, it's 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 always something where God in that I thouness, you know, we know him as the as the friend of sinners, and that he re- he, he literally he doesn't remember our sin. That that's a powerful um, that's a powerful capacity of God, and um, one that demonstrates his character in a beautiful way. On to Second Timothy three fourteen through four five. Here we have this sort of relatively famous passage about Scripture, right? That that Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay in in the faith as he learned it from childhood, and he he is sort of saying that the sacred writings are able to instruct for salvation through faith in Christ, and how it's all inspired by God for teaching and correction and and training in righteousness. Uh, so it's yeah, pretty pretty. You know, oftentimes if people are talking about what, how, you know, the authority of scripture or something, this is a passage that often it is pointed mm-hmm. to. Yeah, they'll jump in with this. It, of course, I'm always, you know, I, I have a slant on so many things, and it doesn't change here. I mean, I think the, the this is an ancestral knowledge that he has. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, knowing from knowing from whom you learned what you believe. Um, is a part of um, what it means to have faith and to live this particular life and to walk this particular path. Um, we don't approach the sacred writings alone. We don't um, we don't approach them as individuals. We approach we have an ancestry um, both in our the, the faith communities in which we were raised, um, the community those faith communities' history um, rooted in you know. The, the the apostles and the patristic um, uh, writers and preachers um, that that helps us to understand. We've been instructed in how to read them, uh, and and that's the first thing he says before he just before he jumps into the idea of the inspiration of scripture. It's communal. Yeah, and it, it's communal, and it's also through through faith in Christ. That I think of like the Emmaus Road experience, right, where they, you know, Christ opens the scriptures to this these two disciples on the road that, that it's that it's in the community and also in with the lens of faith through Christ that the scriptures come alive. They don't come they're not just logarithms, spiritual logarithms or something that 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 there's that there's a center there, right? They're inspired within a context. Um, and that context is the family of God. Yeah, that that context is the the people of God, uh, the household of God. And um, you know, outside of um, that household. I mean, we might approach them in a sort of, um, you know, uh, literary way, and we can learn some things uh, from them. We can look at the history and of the text and their 
their transmission and redaction and all these kind of things. And maybe we can learn some things from that. But the inspiration comes from reading them within the community. And within the community, the community reads them as, as the person of Jesus opening the book and revealing within the law and in the prophets, the scriptures, um, the writings, the wisdom himself, you know, taking the veil off of us and showing us how these texts speak of him and how he transfigures um, these texts. And, um, and, and in that sense, they're useful for teaching and reproof and correction, training, um, and, and that we're prepared for every good work. Um, outside that context, um, they can be oppressive. Um, they can teach us the wrong, really literally teach us the wrong things about God. Um, I, I'm constantly going back to this image that Irenaeus uses of the, of the icon. And, um, uh, you know, you, the, the arrangement of scripture, the way we arrange scripture, we can have it, you know, we can come out looking like a, like a, um, a fox, or we can have the image of God coming looking like a king. Um, and, uh, and we do that at the regular fide. It's the rule of faith. It's that ancestral understanding, the communal understanding of scripture, um, that is the foundation of its inspiration. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting too. I, I think that's right. And, and this idea of like his warning for people will find teachers to suit their own desires, turn away from yes. listening to truth and wander away to myths. I think of yes. like so much of faith, faith often degenerates into myths and folk religion. Like, you know, it, it just kind of, when you're getting away from that rule of faith that you're talking about, oftentimes people just interpret the Bible. And, and you know, it's like what people always say, think that God helps those who helps them help themselves is in the Bible and stuff like that. Not you know, there. There, there, this kind of folk religious uh, insight comes to dominate the truth. He's very clear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge who, who Christ is to judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and of the kingdom that he announces, I, I solemnly urge you to proclaim this message. So it's, it's, um, uh, that is the foundation of our reading of the text, our proclamation of the text. And that's where it becomes, becomes useful and profitable. And, and, uh, you, you see that, um, um, well, he, 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 he repeats himself in the proclamation, convince, rebuke, encourage, uh, most patience and teaching and so forth. And then he says, there's going to be people that are going to come along and um, and twist this thing, um, and we've seen it. We've we've seen it in the in the second century. We've seen it in the fifth century. We saw it in um, uh, the eleventh century. We see it today. Um, where, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, and I think a lot of times people take this passage and they're like looking. They 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 they, they use it to combat like what they you know think of as like cheap grace or. You know, people who um, are teaching that there's really no challenge in Christianity or whatever. And I'm not sure. I mean, that might be an aspect of what Paul's, you know, trying to get through Timothy about here. But I think it's also, you know, again, who is the Christ you're proclaiming? And and is that Christ, does that Christ look like a king, like the actual human who sits at the right hand of the Father and who has loved the world in the way that he has and has spoken all um, of these signs and done all these wonders and, um, uh, you know, who loves mankind, or is it some other kind of God? And, I, and, you know, I think that's what we're facing today. You know, we yes, we have people that kind of, you know, 
make Christianity something that has, you know, low challenge. And, and that's definitely not the case. There's nothing low challenge about actually walking with the one who says, take up your cross, follow yeah. me. It's very, very high challenge. But, it, you know, they tend to make it into sort of like, oh, these te- the teachers that make it easier on your morality or something. When I, when I think we need to pay some attention to the way they're, you know, way that they're teaching is deforming the doctrine of God. Yeah. songs of freedom cause all I ever had redemption songs redemption songs on to the gospel Luke 18 1 through 8 such an interesting parable right like here he tell, tells this parable about uh, their need to pray always and he says you know there's this there's this judge I love this he neither fears God nor has respect for people, neither God or public opinion. And in that city, there was a widow who keeps coming to him saying, grant me justice against my opponent. And he refuses for a while, but later he says, ah, though I have no fear of God or respect for anyone, yet because she keeps bothering me, I'll, 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 grant, her just, I'll, I'll grant her justice. I'll, ju- I'll make her just or justify her, right? Uh, so that, that she may not wear me out. And then he says, you know, listen, it, 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 won't God do this for his chosen ones who cry to him all day long? Um, but will he find, will the Son of Man find faith when he, on earth? Interesting parable. I love the characters that he draws on in these parables, right? You know, in a certain city, there's a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. Right. It's so great. <laughs> He's like, he doesn't love God. He doesn't love people. Um, you know, and uh, so, so, I mean, he's, po- he's totally out of communion and out of fellowship and out of relationship with God. And, and then, right, the personage that walks into the room is exactly the sort of widow, right? The one who we especially are supposed to love and care for and, you know, um, and, and show justice to. And, um, and, and it says immediately he doesn't, he, he opposes her. Um, he opposes justice for her. He refuses her justice. And later he comes to himself or he thinks to himself, you know, I don't have fear of God. I don't respect anyone, but because she keeps bothering me, you know, she keeps knocking at the door. She keeps pleading with me. I'm going to grant her justice because I'm just tired of listening to her, you know? And, um, and, and then, then he puts the brakes on a massive contrast, right? So, so this, this man is evil. And you think that God, again, it gets back to what we were talking with Timothy. You know, people have a wrong view of God. He says, you know, isn't God going to grant justice to the people that um, cry to him day and night? Is he ever going to delay helping people who are crying out to him? He's going to quickly come to their aid. So it's a beautiful contrast. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, how is one justified, right? Through crying out independence. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that even... Even a woman who is t- is is powerless and goes to this guy who's not who's kind of an antihero, an unscrupulous person. Even he will justify her in, in relation to her opponent. Like, well, how much more will God, who is the friend to sinners, do this if we if we have faith, you know, that He will? I mean, you know, if if we just cling to, if we just cling to Him in our dependence, you know. So it's this kind of thing where, like, it seems like. We're, we're to sort of identify with the widow and our dependence, and that's our dependence makes us eminently justifiable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, again, he, he's telling the story of the unjust judge because that is, the, that is the idea and the image 
that people have of God, right? And so he's drawing that out in this like way that just makes this guy seem horrible. Um, and then he shifts the gears and says, wait a minute, that's not what God's like at all. Um, and the kingdom of God, um, the God that I am, I embody, the God that I'm proclaiming, the God that my, my, my suffering and sacrifice makes real and, um, and makes visible. Uh, you know, he's, he's intimately, um, I love the ending of the latest season of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah, yeah. show or not. Yeah. When, when she's, you know, gotten those 300 children out of, yeah. uh, of, of, uh, Gilead, you know, this America that's fallen into this, uh, sort of conglomerate monotheistic, um, religion that is Christless, but has all kinds of God language to it. And she, and she's been injured and the handmaids are carrying her out. Right. And she starts reciting that text. Um, you know, I see my, the affliction of my people in Egypt and I'm coming to deliver them and, um, and, and take them to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And, uh, it was like, wow, this is, uh, this is, in other words, here's a guy. Remember, it's like in that show, it's always like when they're way up in the sky, it's kind of like God, you're going to hear God's point of view. You know what I mean? Um, and, and they, they show the, the, the handmaids dragging her out and it's on her, in her cape and it's from way, way up. And then it gets closer and closer and closer. And then she starts quoting that passage from, from Exodus. So it's so amazing. Good. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, this is your image of God and it's so far off. Yeah, when the widow comes pleading to him, he 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 sees her first of all. He sees her, and um, he knows her tribulation. And he comes, and of course, in the in the flesh of Jesus, he comes in person, and he's and he's ready to suffer with to deliver. Um, this idea that I came up recently was this you know theodicy. This, the Gospels don't give us the theodicy; they give us the God who dies. With yeah. Us. There's this, no, Father Capon says this great thing. Uh-oh, Capon, there your favorite is. commentator. Yeah, well, in the parables, I think he's amazing. He says, there is no condemnation the because there is no condemner. There is no hanging judge and there is no angry God. He's knocked himself clean off of the bench and clear out of the God union. Nobody but a bad judge could have issued a favorable judgment on our worthless cases. And nobody but a failed God, a God finally and for and for all out of any recognizable version of the God business could possibly have been big hard enough to throw a going out of business sale for the likes of us. Jesus concludes the parable, however, with a warning in the form of yet another rhetorical question. Still, he says, uh, nevertheless, notwithstanding, in spite of all the lovely good news I've just given you, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The implied answer of course is no. A dead God is no more acceptable to a world of respectable winners than a corrupt, self-pleasing judge would be to most of the members of the ABA Ethics Committee, as they would not trust such a judge to sit on the bench. So we will, all, will do almost anything to avoid putting our faith in a God who doesn't come up to our standards for divinity. It's great. I'd be great on the irony of, of why Jesus chooses the character. It's great. That's perfect. And I, I think a perfect place to stop. I can't imagine saying anything more about that text. Ken, my friend, it's always good to be with you. Thanks again. It was brilliant, as always. And again, live from Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it 
on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ken for being on the podcast and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.